Hey, podcast listeners, the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies is sponsoring its annual biblical symposium at St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 8 to 9, 2019. This year's keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Miller from the Catholic University of America. Meet Father Paul Tarazi and other scholars who will present and discuss papers on biblical exegesis and language. Join Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton for a live recording of the Bible's Literature Podcast. Engage with others like you who are committed to biblical studies for all who have ears to hear. Register online at ephesusschool.org. Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the modern internet of consumers, everyone is treated as a profit center. Content, images, and themes are all engineered to attract the widest audience possible. If everyone likes your message, it must be good, right? This profit-centered model has corrupted our media institutions and undermines our trust in each other. In 2018, everyone is in sales, even our universities, and it's a catastrophe. While the Bible was indeed written in such a way that the widest possible audience could understand its content, it was not written to be accepted by a broad audience. It was written to say what it has to say with no regard for its appeal. That is what it means to teach. And the biblical teaching in Matthew is itself the narrow path of which Jesus speaks. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 261 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, Dr. Benton. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Father. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank God. You know, Rich, we've talked about this many times, and it seems to come up over and over and over again in parish life, and that is this discussion of numbers and growth. We, as human beings, always think about what we're doing in terms of measurable outcomes. With respect to church life, that's either the size of your building (laughs) or its condition or the number of people you have. And usually the biggest metric is how your building looks, how it's adorned. And to achieve that metric, you need numbers. And so we start to think about everything in terms of material growth. This, of course, is a complete betrayal of Scripture, which has no interest whatsoever in material growth. It's not interested in numbers. It's not interested in 
success. I've heard people try to explain that what the Bible considers successful is different than what human beings consider successful, but I would push back on that and say the Bible is interested in utility. How can we be useful? And the way in which a community is useful or an individual is useful will always, with respect to Scripture, serve the needs of the common good, but may not serve the needs of that community or that individual. The success is simply, are you doing the work that you need to be doing? That's between you and God. You can't put it on an Excel spreadsheet to figure it out if you're doing it well or not. It doesn't work that way. God, if he uses Excel, doesn't let you see the Excel spreadsheet. You don't know. You only can do today what must be done for the sake of the gospel in order to teach. We've been saying over and over again that the role of the one who has learned the gospel, who has heard the gospel, is to spread the gospel. And that's it. You aren't allowed to argue about the gospel. You aren't allowed to debate or fight or force or coerce. You simply teach. Just like you can't force a seed to grow, all you can do is plant it, and then you move on. And if you obsess about this one seed and whether it gets planted, there's a thousand other seeds that don't get planted because you're obsessing over this one seed. You plant and you go. You plant and you go. You plant and you go. Now, is it producing the results that you want? Well, the problem is, Father, like you were saying, it may not be benefiting the community. It might be for the greater good. It might not be for this generation. It might be for the next generation. The results of what you do today, everyone you know might be dead before it actually has the result that it's supposed to have. We make these assumptions that we can and should be able to see the results of the labor and that the natural result would be people like it, people approve of it, people find it interesting or helpful or entertaining. But we don't know what the good of that is in the long run. You can't measure your success by how beautiful your building is, how ornate your building is, or how full your building is. That's not a way of measuring the success of your work, because the success of your work might come after you're dead, or the failure of your work might come after you're dead. Everything might look good today. It might be full. But when you die, you might find that it was all in vain because you weren't teaching the gospel. You were just being entertaining. And so you were packing the hall just like Bruce Springsteen packs the hall. The best way to think about it is in terms of God's success, not our success. We are to be fruitful, to produce a result, to have utility, to be useful. That's the narrow gate that we're talking about, to submit to what scripture is saying. I find it interesting, Richard, that everyone understands that one of the early lessons of adolescence is the very important precept that you cannot live your life or make decisions according to what other people think. You cannot care about what other people think. You have to be faithful to what you know is correct to what your parents have taught you, and what you believe is the right thing to do according to your conscience. That is a message that I deliver to my children as often as possible for their sake. I find it interesting that almost everyone would or should agree with the obvious importance of that message, and yet, when it comes to teaching scripture, we get caught up in the question of looking around to see how many people are satisfied with what we're doing. We get all wrapped up in a knot about what other people think. If we're willing to tell our children that they should be faithful 
to their conscience and not worry about what other people think, why are we not willing to remain faithful to the content of Scripture and not care about what other people think? The way that caring about what people think manifests itself in our culture is niceness. We think that the teacher is supposed to be nice, and the dad is supposed to be nice, and the mom is supposed to be nice, and the priest is supposed to be nice, and everyone's supposed to be nice, because God ultimately is nice. And of course, we know this is a lie, because success in biblical terms is mercy. (laughs) If you receive mercy from God, then you have been successful. But it does not depend on you, your success. It depends on God. Now, being nice is a good way of not turning people away, but nice may or may not be a way of teaching the teaching. Nice might get in the way of teaching the gospel, of proclaiming the good news. And if nice gets in the way of proclaiming this teaching, you have to choose. It's either niceness or the teaching. It's very difficult for a human being to, especially an American, (laughs) to decide between the two. Because it seems that if we're going to be good Christians, we need to be nice, which is baloney. You teach, which may look ugly sometimes, and that's fine because the teaching is what's primary. It might turn some people away, but the only people it turns away are the people who are not serious, the people who want to feel good more than they want to learn. Okay, fine. If that's the case, I'm not going to come chasing you like we were talking about before. If you're repelled by what I say, okay, then you're going to have to go. That's your choice. But I'm not going to nicen things up just so you stay with it. That's not how things work. The Mathean Jesus has but one mission, to usher in the kingdom contained in the content of his father's instruction. That is what the Mathean Jesus is here to do. That is the kingdom that he makes present with force. We will hear, as the gospel unfolds, how he will refuse to argue with the scribes and the Pharisees. Because to argue with the scribes and the Pharisees, to even enter into a discussion with them, is to validate their premise. But for Jesus, in the gospel of Matthew, there is only one premise, and it does not matter what anyone has to say, what anyone thinks or the lies that people may spin to undermine what Jesus is saying. He cares only about delivering the message. And that is the context of verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Scripture is not a popularity contest, and it is not written to be accepted by the masses. In fact, one of the first things we learned very early on in seminary is that every generation rejects Scripture. It is written for the masses in a way that's easy to consume. But that does not mean that everyone who understands it and who hears it will accept it. The way to destruction is full of people. So if you are at a, quote, successful, unquote, church or group or community, and it's packed and full of people, how do you know you're not on the wide way that leads to destruction? 
What Jesus does here is he undermines precisely the number that undergirds our self-righteousness in saying that we must be right. If you feel like you're right because you're getting the numbers, maybe that's precisely the evidence that you're wrong, that you're not teaching the correct teaching. As soon as you feel like things are going well, you have to ask the question, maybe things are not going as well. And in fact, you know, if we go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, the only evidence that's allowed to be shown that you're doing this work is that you're suffering and people ascribe your good works to your Father in heaven and not to you. If you seem to be doing well, if your community seems to be doing well, you better ask the question, maybe you're doing well for all the wrong reasons. Now, there's a dangerous potential here with the way that people interpret texts as opposed to hearing them, Richard. And that dangerous potential is the possibility that someone hearing this text would think, yes, the Bible is very difficult, but I can go through the narrow way, and I don't care if I'm the only one doing it. This is also condemned by this passage. On the one hand, this passage is telling you that most people are not going to submit to Scripture. On the other hand, if you've been listening to the Gospel of Matthew, you've already been instructed that you are evil and that you yourself do not submit to the content of Scripture. On the one hand, verse 13 is an admonition that if you're looking for numbers and growth, your thinking is incorrect. But on the other hand, and primarily, it's a warning in the text that very few people will actually submit to this teaching. And you yourself, being evil, have not submitted to this teaching. So get your act together. I don't want to lose that aspect of the verse because it's very ominous and threatening. It doesn't require interpretation. I mean, let's be honest, all of us at one point or another have said to a parent, but everyone else is doing it. And we've all heard the famous retort, if everyone was jumping off of a bridge, would you jump off of a bridge with them? I mean, we've all heard this. We all know what Matthew is saying here. It's not rocket science. Still, it bears repeating because, as we said at the outset of the episode, people still measure success in terms of body count. Or they use verse 13 the way Paul's opponents use the Torah in Galatians as a protein shake to point out to the whole world that I am able to go through the narrow gate and everyone else is condemned. That's why it's important to hear verse 13 in context of Matthew 5 and 6, where it was made abundantly clear that there's no hope for us as students of this text. So you know that you don't measure up, that you are not perfect as your father is perfect. You can't view verse 13 as your protein shake. And at the same time, you cannot look to what everyone else is doing as an indication of what's safe or correct, because Jesus is telling you that most people have no clue and are taking the path to destruction. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. When I hear verse 14, Richard, 
and I think about the gate that is narrow, I literally think about the space between characters on the surface of the scroll. That is the narrow path. You have to submit to what is written on the page. This is Matthew, where we're talking about every iota and every kerea. That is the narrow path that leads to life. Right. It's the difficult path. And what makes it difficult is our own ego. I mean, what's interesting here is that it's narrow and straight. It's an easy way. (laughs) You won't get lost. (laughs) It's pretty easy to find. There's no turns. It's easy. It's right there. But There are few who want this life because the life, as Jesus is going to explain later, is that you have to give up your life in order to find this life. And that's the problem, is that the wide way, the wide gate, is attractive to the ego. The narrow way will destroy your ego. But that's where life is. Life lies on the other side of your ego. You have to get past your ego because it's your ego who says you need to take care of yourself. You need to make sure you're earning enough. You need to make sure that you're still moving ahead or getting bigger or getting faster or whatever, as opposed to saying, God gives me everything that I need. I was listening to a speaker recently who talked about how the American SUV represents the arrogance of American culture because what it says is, I need to take more resources than anyone else so that I can protect myself and have my convenience. Because in case I get in an accident, I cause more destruction than is caused to me. This is arrogance because I need more in order to keep myself safe, even if you have less and you are less safe. This is the wide way. Because this is what the ego says. I need bigger and better to keep myself safe. The narrow way says, it's not about my safety. Jesus came to teach. His body did not last, but his teaching lasted. The only thing that's relevant is what we have in Scripture. Like you said, Father, the narrow way between the letters on the scroll, that narrow way is the only thing that has relevance to our lives. Everything else is an illusion created by our ego. Just like the illusion that it was better under Pharaoh than it is under God that the Israelites were complaining about when they were in the desert. Any reader knows it was not better, but it's only the nature of the human ego to say, oh, if only I could have made the decision, it would have been better. If only it were up to me, then it would have been better. Only if I could have decided, then everything would be going as planned. Everyone wants to be a self-righteous control freak. That's why they prefer the wide way. The narrow way leads to life, but you can't be an egoist and you can't be a control freak. You have to allow God to give you what you need in its time and be grateful. And the only measure of success is mercy when the judgment comes. Just this past weekend, I had a conversation with a parishioner about the journey that our parish has been on with respect to the gospel. And As you know, one of the things that we have preached consistently over the past few years has been the biblical condemnation of the temple. The destruction of the temple is central to the teaching of the Old Testament. It embodies the novelty of the biblical tradition expressed in the crucifixion of Jesus. And we have preached this in our community while at the same time trying to find a home for our community. For many years, we 
operated out of a funeral home and then we were in a warehouse for a while and we finally were able to buy an old building in the inner city in St. Paul. And it's been a great blessing for us. But I was chatting with this parishioner about the problem of self-righteousness and how the biblical message pushes us well beyond what we imagine our limits are with respect to sin. There's no way that you can gather as a community in Minnesota where the snow falls pretty consistently every year. There's no way you can gather as a community without some kind of shelter. I mean, we're in the land of 10,000 lakes, even more mosquitoes, and plenty of cold air and precipitation. So we had to find a place to meet. It's a practical matter. When we preach against the construction of the temple, but then realize as a community that we can't fulfill that teaching. We are frail human beings. We need a place to meet. When we preach that teaching and then are stuck with the reality that we ourselves need a place to gather, that we ourselves are not fully dependent on the Lord's instruction, it disallows self-righteousness, but at the same time safeguards our steps. Because even if we concede that we are not righteous and we have no choice but to find a permanent home somewhere to gather, and I put permanent in quotes because everything is turning to dust, even if that's the case, because we are constantly being pushed by the teaching to submit to a narrow path that we ourselves can't follow, the news of that narrow path, the instruction of the narrow path, protects us from trying to build the Taj Mahal and from abusing each other in the construction of our temple. This is how it works. Scripture is preaching a narrow path, and when Christ says that it's very difficult and few are able to tread that path, he's being generous. Because no one can be perfect. The way that you follow the narrow path, the mercy that he's showing in this difficult instruction, is by accepting that the Lord alone is your provider in Matthew. He will give you everything you need for the journey. You are fully dependent on him, and without him you are nothing, and you are not allowed to assert yourself as a reference. You are not righteous. So you obey, and you're at his mercy, and he will do his part for your sake if you humble yourself and love the neighbor. We just heard him say, treat others as you would have them treat you, and that is not possible if verse 13 is your protein shake. When we bought our building, questions would arise about, hey, are we making enough money to keep it running? Are we giving as much as we can? Maybe we need to have more giving units if the church is going to be able to keep its doors open, etc. What you and I have consistently taught is we'll keep the doors open as long as we can. And we have the work that we can do today. And other than that, there's no other work that we can do. If something needs to be done, we do it today. 
and then we go to bed, and then tomorrow we do the work we can do tomorrow. And that's it. That's all we can do. But if we want whether the doors stay open to depend on our labor or on attracting more people, then we're on the wide way. And maybe this time the wide way doesn't have as many people on it, but that's the wide way. That doesn't lead to life. That leads to destruction. Because if it's dependent on us and getting more bodies in, then we forget what the message says because we think it's about us. And the teaching that we teach is going to be false, and therefore it's going to be attracting more people. So the whole reason we bought the building, as you described so nicely, Father, (laughs) it's undermined completely. We keep it open today until the Lord takes it away. The Lord gave us what we needed in the moment, but as soon as we need it no more, then the Lord takes it back. And that's how it goes. As long as we're doing the work we need to do today, our only measure of success is that we receive mercy when the judgment comes. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Have a great week. Thanks, you too, Father. heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.